You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. The sermon text this morning is from Acts 11, 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. The um, kids, fifth grade and under, please see Miss Alyssa in the you back. It's not you. It's and she'll take you uh, to your yeah. class. All right. They mic'd me up. <laughs> what is that, like in uh, sports? They got the mic'd up and we are out in the court? Yeah. Don't do that to me. <laughs> do it while I'm singing. Good morning. I don't need this. Let me just move it here. Here you go. Um, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I am Chad, one of the pastors here. Uh, Aaron is a wonderful co-laborer and brother who serves alongside, and we are thankful to serve you uh, as ministers in the gospel to see God work through you. Um, and we're thankful for these next moves that Aaron started to talk about uh, into the future and the possibilities of new spaces and new places. And um, if you hadn't had the opportunity to come visit, talk to somebody who did yesterday. Uh, we got a couple thumbs up from everybody. So um, we spirit fingers in the back again from Kevin. Um, so do I, do I hear myself really loud? Is it? Okay, I'm just wondering. It's fine. I just hear echo. We good? Okay. <laughs> Um, as was mentioned, we're in Acts chapter 11. We're taking a, a, a turn here uh, to Antioch, a different location. The stories have been moving from place to place. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along there from Acts chapter 11 uh, and, and read along with us. If you don't have a Bible at all, of course, we, as always, have free Bibles at the table. Uh, we want to have that available as a gift from us to you. Um, and we're continuing our series through Acts. We actually visited this uh, passage previously uh, during a previous series, but we're going to go into this in a different way, uh, really to explore more than the themes we were visiting previously. But I'd like to pray and ask that God be with us and the Spirit teach us as we look at his word. So 
pray with me. Father, I'm thankful this morning for the opportunity to open up the text to, um, to hear from you, to be taught by you. God, I pray and trust that your spirit would be with us, with your disciples, with your children, and Lord, and guide us into all truth. And Lord, I also pray for those who don't see or walk clearly now today, even uh, as people who claim the name of Christ, Lord, if they in some small way might be challenged today, Lord, to seek your face more fully and to follow your spirit wholeheartedly, God, I pray that would be true starting today. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the city of Antioch was about 300 miles away from Jerusalem. And the story that's occurring here begins with something similar to what we've seen in previous stories where Stephen was being persecuted. Stephen was actually martyred. Uh, he lost his life. And the, the believers, the church in Jerusalem, began to scatter throughout the region. That's the way that the story in Philip and the, and the Ethiopian Sumerians uh, began, that he was pressed away from Jerusalem and out of necessity went to different places and began to speak the gospel to different, uh, to different cities, different towns, different peoples. Um, and that's the same thing that begins this particular story here. But what's significant about Antioch, it's, we've talked about this in the past. It's a very cosmopolitan city. It's a merger of the East and the West. It's a busy city. It's actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire alongside Rome and um, Alexandria, I believe. Uh, I'll top of my head here. But we have uh, this city is a major player and it affects the culture throughout Rome. And it affects the culture throughout the world, really, as they know it. And so in this space, interestingly enough, is where the disciples are first called Christians. That title that we are probably overly familiar with today. Uh, One that we see carried by many people. A label that have been taken by people, been given to people throughout the years. Uh, And there's a lot of views and opinions on what really makes someone a Christian. What does that label mean? How can it be taken? Some might, to one extreme, say this is a wide-open tent. You want to say you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Go for it. You got used to the title, you put in your bank, you follow through. Maybe it's something that your family did, so now that's you. Maybe that's the country you've lived in, and that's you. There's the other side of that where people who want to be gatekeepers of Christian and question everyone that comes to task. Like, I'm a believer. Really? Well, what about this belief? What about here? Well, that spiritual experience might not be exactly right. Well, I don't know about that. We see that kind of commentary happening, for example, with the Asbury Revival, if you haven't seen the news that's been going on. I'm not trying to make a designation right here from the pulpit on what's going on in that space, but it's always exciting to see the Spirit of God being talked about in a broad sense. And so we see so many commentators come to their YouTube channels and start talking about, well, they're not repenting of this, so I don't think this is real. And start to gatekeep what is a Christian. And then sometimes, as we've seen historically, that labels are tightly connected specifically to nationalities and ethnic groups. You know, if you're Middle Eastern, you're Islamic. If you're, if you're from... Um, if you're Jewish in Israel, you must be of the Jewish faith. If you are a Western or white person, you're probably Christian. You're definitely Christian. And, and those who may have traveled to other countries probably have seen some of that. It's just an assumption based on where you're coming from and where you're born. But the question I appreciate is being addressed here underneath the story of what's going on in Antioch and through the story is really what is it that makes a Christian movement? What is it that makes a move of God? What is it that marks a Christian? 
And in the story, we see specifically that the, go- the gospel is going forth to all people in all nations. It's not limited by any borders. It's not limited by any moralities or, or pre- predispositions, any history of a person's behavior or their lifestyle. It goes to all people. And we also see that it goes forth not just by conforming people to a pattern of behavior, but by changing them from the inside. By the Spirit of God working in people and making them, and making them into something new. And then that something new showing to the world around them and the way that they live. That, that the entire city of Antioch starts saying, who's that group over there? They're acting funny. Oh, they're the Christians. I didn't even have to put a label on it. So what I want to look at in this specific story, there's several movements of the story, but that this story serves to remind us of three truths really about the advance of God's kingdom. And the first one shows up in Acts chapter 9, uh, 11, 19 through 24. And I'm going to start reading in verse 19 where the good news of Jesus is for all peoples. It says this, Now those who had been scattered at a, as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So at this point in this story is what I've already mentioned before, is that Luke is continuing the narrative of the Christians being scattered from Jerusalem. There's no clear indicator in this, by the way, that Luke's narrative is in any particular order. I'm not suggesting that the things that happened, like Philip went to Ethiopia and Samaria this day, and then a year later saw Saul, who actually had a role in the martyrdom of Stephen, has been led to Christ. We don't know that that's happened already, but it may have. Uh, He was converted in chapter 9. Peter was led to the Gentile Cornelius in chapter 10, and he defended the salvation of the Gentiles at the beginning of this very chapter. But we don't know that those things have actually happened. They could be just a concurrent events happening as as the church is scattering throughout. And so in Antioch in particular, which is 300 miles away from Jerusalem, I'm talking about you, 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 you track 20 miles a day walking on foot, you get there, it takes you 15 days still. So, so this is not our modern day world where we're, you jump in the car to go visit somebody, you know, 300 miles still feels like a hike to me and he's driving, but at the same time, you don't hear things immediately. So, so they are assuming in some way that this is still a Jewish religion. They're only talking to Jews is what it says at the end of this. These disciples, speaking to Jews, see Christianity as really a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people, okay? And maybe, maybe they started to hear rumors of God's working in the Gentiles, but there's something that changes in Antioch. Look at verse 20. There were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So all of a sudden, this group of men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they're in a, they're in a space they're comfortable with. They're, they are not Jewish, so probably are used to rubbing shoulders with Gentiles and non-Jewish people. And it just seems right to them to start sharing about the good news of the Lord Jesus. Proclaiming about the Lord Jesus. And what happens? Well, the Lord's hand is at work. And a large number who believe turn to the Lord. Philip came to Ethiopian. Peter came to Cornelius. Antioch, though, is an entirely different advance of the kingdom. In fact, the scale of Gentile evangelizing here is completely new. 
It's not just the one or two people that we see in these previous stories. Luke, the author of Acts, was actually from Antioch. It's possible he was one of the converts at Antioch. So he might have had a front row seat during this initial wave of what was happening, and he wants to show us something. He wants us to understand that what's happening in Antioch is a continuation and an expansion of the exponential growth of believers among the Jews to now be exponential growth among the Gentiles. That's the language he's using. The same way that each new story at the beginning of Acts ends with large numbers coming to faith, this short story in chapter 11 speaks three times about large numbers coming and learning. In verse 21, it says the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24 says, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. In verse 26, Barnabas and Saul taught large numbers together. He is saying, Luke is saying, hey, the gospel is now for all of us. It's not just the Jews. And it's coming in wave after wave of people coming to faith. And it's significant that this large movement actually happened among the Gentiles in Antioch. Okay, Antioch is situated on what's called the Arantos River. It's five miles from a laurel grove that's famous for the worship of Daphne. Now, men in the city would actually reenact Apollo's pursuit of Daphne day and night with the temple priestesses, who were actually ritual prostitutes. And throughout the ancient world, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, was a euphemism for depravity. Okay, so this city was known for that. The Roman satirist by the name of Juvenal, it's a fitting name for someone who's doing satire, probably where it came from, he bemoaned the decadence that he saw in Rome. And Rome is situated on the Tiber River, and he says that the sewage of Syrian Orontes has for long been discharging itself into the Tiber meaning that we are becoming like them. Like they're affecting us. Their morals are flowing here, and we got to stop. So it's in the middle of a Gentile city of sensuality and immorality that God establishes one of the most significant missionary-sending cities of the early church, where the disciples are first called Christian. I mean, it harkens back to me when he stands, when Jesus himself stands with his disciples in in some of the most pagan areas in front of a rock and says, on this rock, in the middle of all of this depravity, I'm building my church. And then we see in Antioch that he plants the kingdom flag in the heart of enemy territory and does it in a dramatic fashion. See, there's historical evidence that a large number of Jewish proselytes in Antioch, a Jewish proselyte is someone who's a non-Jew who comes to follow after Jewish tradition, actually is baptized into Judaism, all right? So, so we see many Jewish proselytes being referred to as God-fearers. Cornelius was one we've already seen. Lydia comes later. There's people that are hanging around the temple and they're being brought to faith. They have a familiarity with the Jewish religion. So for them, it may have come to them first, right? They may have seen it first. Uh, They may have context for a Jewish Messiah. But this also includes Gentiles who aren't Jewish proselytes at all. They're just people that are living their life in Antioch, doing their thing, and they come face to face with the King of the universe, the Lord Christ Jesus. And in that space, they're not going to have any context for a Jewish Messiah. 
I mean, they may have heard something about that, but for, for the Gentiles, the Jesus as Messiah and hope of Israel is probably not going to mean a lot. The Greek term, though, kurios, Lord, and soter, Savior, is something that was current in their religious worldview. It's actually something that, that we see that they were exploring mystery cults and searching for a Lord who could guarantee salvation and immortality. And in some small way, God was preparing hearts of even the pagans to search after something they longed for and that the Jewish, the Christian community, the Gentile community, then heard from these Christians coming in to say, we know that Lord, we know that Savior, and his name is Jesus. It it, it likens to Acts 17 when that's what Paul does when he walks into the middle of all the idols and says, I see you guys are very religious Let me tell you about the one God you don't know about. And the same thing happens here, and it blows up. And there's a clear message that God's wanted to communicate. There's nowhere outside the borders of the kingdom of God saving power of Jesus. Nowhere. Jesus is Lord and Savior to everybody who trusts him. Whatever their life's been like, wherever they've grown up, whatever city they're in, whatever town they're in, But at the same time, the Jerusalem church still isn't quite sure. They're kind of like, they're they're, they're us sometimes. We're we're speculating or we're curious or we're cynical about, I don't know, let's see if it lasts. They're like, I don't know if this is really what Spirit of God's doing. Let's send somebody to check it out. News in verse 22, news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. It's still a new thing for Jerusalem. They don't know what's happening in Antioch, but they've heard. Remember, 15 days away, this has probably been going for a minute. Something's happening. Let's send Barnabas. It's probably been going and strengthening and rolling. And Barnabas shows up on the scene, the son of encouragement, we hear about him earlier in Acts. He was, a, he was actually a Cyprian. He was from Cyprus. So he was probably a good mediator, right? He's familiar. He's not hometown Jerusalem boy. He's going to come with a little more understanding and grace. And he's demonstrated even with Saul and others that he is an encourager at heart. And so they send Barnabas. And immediately when he gets there, he recognizes the grace of God here. He's like, the enemy's not going to want them to turn to Jesus. And they're trying to chase after him. There is something God's doing here. And what does he do? He encourages them. He rejoices. He celebrates. It's an interesting thing in the Greek that actually plays together that he sees the grace of God and he graces them. He just grace upon grace happening in here. And that rejoicing and overflowing. That's the way it's written for us to see that Barnabas is so enthusiastic. Like, listen. I am not. I have like this middle ground. I've even been criticized there for not really being overly excited about some things recently. I won't like give that illustration right now. <laughs> where where my enthusiasm as a kid when Christmas came around, you know, they always knew what I really liked only because I would look at it a lot. That was it. Like I'd open up and be like, oh, thanks. I'd open. Oh, that's cool. Whatever, right? And it usually wasn't a pair of clothes or anything. But anyway, so. My, my son's like that too. I get, to, I get to feel the other end of that now. Like, you like it, right? 
We're good. Uh, Barnabas doesn't seem to be that way. His enthusiasm just charges the church up and says, go forward, move forward with this. Let's pursue with, and, it, and there's an interesting play here when he says, he encouraged them to rain, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. There's different ways of looking at this. Some of it feels like he's encouraging them to have devoted hearts, but some of it says with his devoted heart and his devotion, he's encouraging them to remain true to the Lord. Either way, both of those things are true. That he knows and, and re- realizes that God is at work in him and he sees it in them and he wants to encourage it. He's an encourager. Uh, it's a challenge and a conviction to me to recognize when God is at work somewhere to, to slow down from trying to nitpick or, or work through the details and celebrate. Sometimes we need to just celebrate and join in where God's at work and then continue to pursue Jesus further and trust that he's the one that's going to change them, not me. The Spirit's the one that's going to be at work. And it says, why is it that it says that he is the one that encourages them? It's interesting because it says this in verse 24, that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's an interesting phrase to choose because Jesus himself said there's no one good but God. I mean, he made a very specific illustration there when he told the rich man that. So why are we now Luke going, yeah, but this guy's good. He's not God. But there's a modifier on there that describes why he says he's a good man. Because he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's encouraging them because he himself is full of the Spirit and faith. He himself is full and being led by the Spirit in him and following in faith and obedience. And he knows that God leads you into all truth. He knows that the Spirit is good. And he knows if he encourages them to remain true and devoted in heart to the Spirit, that he will lead them as well. He recognizes the grace of God at work in Antioch because the Holy Spirit was at work inside uh, Barnabas. This is one of the significant realities, guys, that we must recognize about God's kingdom that God doesn't change people by forcing us to conform to a list of rules and regulations. That God works in people to change them into the image of Christ. And that the Holy Spirit has been at work in Barnabas in such a way that the grace of Christ overflows and he is celebrating the continued grace of the Spirit of God in Antioch. And the church grows. It grows. Not only is the Spirit of God working to show us that all people, including Antioch, are open to the gospel, but the Spirit changes God's people from the inside. And we continue to see that here. When it says that the that that Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Full of the Holy Spirit is an interesting phrase. For that particular phrase, when we see Christ use this back when he talks to Nicodemus on, the, on top of the building, when he says in John three sixteen, maybe you're familiar with this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, maybe you're familiar depending on your version. You've seen it at the end of an end zone. That's actually part of an entire dialogue that he has with a man named Nicodemus. And he's on top of, this is towards the end, he's on top of a building and he's trying to discuss with him what the realities are of the kingdom. 
And when he talks to Nicodemus, he says this in John 3, starting in verse 5. He tells him, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born of the spirit and of water. And Nicodemus responds, how can these things be? And do you know what Jesus answers him? How can you be a teacher in Israel and not know this? Jesus tells us the fact that his spirit will work in the people of God is not new. It's the way God would work from the beginning of time. That his spirit would work in the people in Antioch wouldn't be a surprise. Because as he works in his people throughout history, that's how God works. And that was what was told to occur way back when, before even Jesus sat on the roof of Nicodemus. Because when he told him this, he said, you must be born of water and the spirit. And he's quoting and referencing a passage in Ezekiel. How are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know this? This is an Ezekiel, man. You should have learned this when you were learning everything else. What are you busy with? Why haven't you seen this? God's going to wash you clean with water and fill you with his spirit. That's what comes. That's the only way you enter the kingdom. Because in Ezekiel 36, that's exactly what it says. Verse 25 reads, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. The water comes first and washes away the impurity. This is what we symbolize when we talk about baptism. Right? We have baptism. We say when we go into the water, we are being washed clean on the outside, but that's what God's doing on the inside of his people. He's washing them clean. But it doesn't stop there because as God's people come into the kingdom, he says, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit with you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So first, we're to be cleaned for our unrighteousness, our guilt. Second, God places his spirit in us and guides us and empowers us in obedience. So Barnabas in this passage has been washed clean and is following the spirit. And for us as believers, we see that he is full of the spirit. The spirit is guiding him, leading him, directing him, just like all of us as believers. Brothers and sisters, you've got the spirit of God in you. If you're one who follows after and trusts in Christ, he guides you. The New Testament tells us that the evidence for our salvation is the Spirit of God given to us, the assurance of our salvation. And if you fail to hear that voice, let's pray about that together because it's a promise. The second thing it says about Barnabas is he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does that actually mean? I mean, you've got the Spirit speaking to you. What's it mean to exercise faith? Why does it put them together? Well, it's a popular atheist definition that belief, that faith is a belief in something for which you have no proof. I don't agree with that. It's not even close. It's a derogatory definition meant to just cast us aside that you have faith because you've never seen it. You just believe in something you don't see. You have no clear evidence for. Hebrews 11 gives us a definition of faith. It says that faith is the reality or the assurance of what is hoped for, the proof or the conviction of what is not seen. Faith is, in fact, exercised believing in something you don't see based on facts that you do know. Let me give you an example. My kids 
have faith that we will let them sleep in the house and feed them on occasion because we have a history of that. They haven't seen us do it yet in the future, but they have faith that we will. And, And I'm a sinful father. I'm not a perfect heavenly father providing for their needs. They, they wrestle a little bit with my direction to be really good for them. But they have faith, mostly, that when I set some rules or boundaries, that it's intended for their best interest. Because most of the time it has been. Other times it might just be like, I don't want you around, leave me alone. That's not true, I don't do that. Okay. So faith is, faith is a belief, a trust, that's based on a history you've seen that you, you know, that you have evidence for that informs your future decisions. In the same way, we can lose faith in people, can't we? When they break trust, if I become abusive with my children in homes, the kids have no hope or faith that anything good comes the next day. Life was filled with uncertainty for them. When you're in communities and neighborhoods where violence is a regular occurrence, you can begin to lose faith in humanity because your experience tells you that they can't be trusted. And you begin to understand why there's some communities where I've been in myself and watched the kids hide when a police car drives by. Because their history and their experience has taught them something, the people around them have informed them, they have no faith that that person has good in mind for them. Where for me growing up, that's, oh, look, God, police car, hey, Honk your horn. I don't know. Whatever you ask me to do. Yeah. Let's play like you arrest me. Put in the back seat. You know, no. That, that's a different experience. What, what Barnabas has is both the spirit in him and the faith to trust that the way the spirit leads is good. And then he can follow him and believe and be obedient. See, we have more than sufficient natural and historical evidence for God. That's my premise that I start from. We can talk about those details. I'm not intending to want to create an apologetic class up here for that. It's the argument that Paul uses in his letter to the Romans. He says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and righteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's saying his wrath is right. Why? Because they're suppressing truth. What is it? Since what can be known about him about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his visible attributes that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he's made what, what Paul is arguing that we can look at the world that's made around us and say God made this I, I don't know him I can't I I, personally, I can't identify exactly what he's like, but it's clear to me that this stuff has come from something, someone. He's saying it's evident by what has been made around us. And so that for us to suppress that and to act like there is nothing more greater than us, that there's more that we should pursue in our own personal life for ourselves within this world and created around us, is, is absolutely sinful and wrong and abhorrent and God's wrath is good against that. That's his argument. 
The other side of that is that when we look at the world around us, we see that God is here and he is good and he has provided so much for so many that we can trust him. And, and, and believe me, I don't want to say this trailly, I think I can understand how people's experience of this world today can cause it and make it difficult for them to feel like they can trust God to do good by them. I get that because this world is evil. It is evil. Uh, in ways that some of us have thankfully probably never experienced. But Paul says it's still clear that he's here. And we can seek him and know him. The things he's put before us is for us to find him and get to know him and to trust him and exercise faith like Barnabas. One of the clearest, one of the examples that I often think of of the desire to just want to suppress that is that I've heard examples in atheist communities where they're willing to say that aliens have come and created us but will not accept the idea of a divine power. They've just shifted that to something else. And often, I want to say this very, very, very graciously, it's because they have attached some idea of, the, of, of God to a definition that is far skewed from what he's really like. And they reject that entirely so they're able and okay to go with an alien, to go with another existence with an infinite regress of natural causes over a God who's eternal. And Paul says, it's wrong. He's here. He's present. And he's the God that Barnabas trusts. The God that Barnabas has placed his faith in. And my encouragement and challenge to you is is this. Even if you have trusted and put your faith in Christ, even if you say, listen, you're telling me the Holy Spirit is in me, but I don't always hear him. I don't feel him. I don't see him. I don't know what you're talking about. Here's a warning. Paul tells us we can stifle the Spirit. That we can hear from the Spirit and when we don't trust and we don't faith and we don't walk in obedience, we can can quench the word as used often. We can suppress the Spirit. God forces nothing on us. And the danger is for us, either we have taken on the label of Christian wrongly because God says that many, Christ says that many will come and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll be like, I didn't know you. Or that we've taken on Christ and said we trust in him, but we've failed to walk in obedience at all. And we begin to hear the Spirit less and less as we push him back and back into our life because we'd rather pursue the world. Because we'd rather pursue the pleasures that it offers. Well, Paul, uh, I mean Barnabas here, when he sees the Spirit of God at work in them, he knows the important thing is for them to ingrain within them the deep truths that they aren't familiar with. These are Gentiles. And he says he knows they need to be taught. He knows that, that their minds need to be renewed. And so immediately, it says this in verse 25, he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And that's when the disciples were called Christians. So... Barnabas says, this church is blowing up. They need some discipleship. I can't do this alone. He's being humble about it. He's not trying to take it on. He's not like, this is Barnabas' mega church time. I got to find Saul. So he goes to Tarsus. And I love the fact that the language it says here, he searches for him. Because he's like, where is this dude? (laughs) He's like, where'd he go? He's probably been rejected by his community. He's a Christian now. He's not Jewish. And so who knows where he is? He's looking for him. 
He brings them in, and for a whole year they met with the church here. They spent a year because they knew these guys needed to learn and grow. Barnabas wanted to see the gospel take root in the hearts of these new believers, and he knows that the truth change will happen by the Spirit in them, not by anything he tells them and lays out for them to do. He wants to equip them to pass on what is entrusted to him. It reminds me of Romans 12, when we're told that in verse 1 and 2, to be, we're urged to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And verse 2 says this, to not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That God is not one who forces a shape onto people and makes them look like something. He rather transforms them from the inside to make them be something. That's exactly what he criticized the Pharisees for when, Jew, when, when Jesus told them, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty, you're painted up nice and fresh, but inside you're dead. And and so the warning for us, guys, is that we're transformed from the inside. That's the encouragement that we not just come in to put on a nice facade. Don't just do the things you think are expected from you. Go to the group on Tuesday night, be here for setup early, make sure that you help with coffee, you know, say yes and amen, love you brother, love you sister, all the stuff that you probably can learn from just being in the community. You can learn to fit in. But God wants to change you. He doesn't want you to pretend. I don't want you to pretend. There is a beauty in the messiness of people being completely transformed by Christ. That he gets in there in the weeds. He doesn't want to just make you be something. He wants to get in there and change you from the inside, and that's a messy process. And, and, and Barnabas knew that was a process that was bigger than him, so he got Saul. We need some help. We need all hands on deck. Get some more in here, and we spent a year working And so as they work in the spirit, excuse me, as they work in Antioch, the spirit begins to work inside the people of God and the spirit's work inside us produces fruit that others see on the outside. Looking at in verse 26 and 30. And when he found Saul, found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. See, people of Antioch called them Christians. That's the most likely candidate here, by the way. It's not a moniker they would have taken on themselves. Christ is actually a title. They would have been like, hey, we're, we're little messiahs. That wouldn't have been what they probably would have done. Um, the, they, they were very comfortable calling themselves disciples, saints, brethren, believers. Uh, Jews would probably not have given them this title, uh, given the fact that they didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. They were familiar with that term. That's what Christ means. Christ is the Greek term for Messiah. So they're not going to be give, granting them that. And, and evidence we see is that the Jews refer to them as followers of the way. Kind of like a weird side cult. These guys are going off on something. All right? So this title then would have clearly been given by Gentiles, non-Jews, in Antioch. Complete pagans who saw this brand new community of people who were living a completely different way of life and needed to label them. They needed to put a label on it. What is this? Likely it was a derogatory term out of the gate. It meant to demean them, dismiss them. Probably like, who are those? Oh, they're the Christians. <laughs> Don't invite him to the party. <laughs> no, we can't hang out with John anymore. 
What happens after the believers start to be called Christians? Well, in verse 27, those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They had prophets that would come around from time to time. And one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of a guy named Claudius. Now, historically, we see evidence of this. We know what happened. That's actually, they've said that this probably was written after the fact, if you want to wipe away that there was a prophet. We don't know the exact mechanics of this. We know that people were clearly sensitive to the Spirit, and they spoke what was true, or they at least spoke what they believed God was leading them to say. And in this case, it says that the Spirit spoke through Agabus and told them there was a famine coming. Claudius is an interesting character because he was literally dragged to the throne when his uncle was killed. He didn't want to do it. Like, they literally said, no, put him on the throne and put a... Put a, a, you know, um, put the crown on him and said, "You got it, bud. Sorry, it's you." He had been he had been threatened. He knew he just saw his his uh, uncle murdered, and his reign was actually marked by a series of poor crop yields that created food shortages throughout the empire. Like he just was he wasn't he didn't want to do it. He wasn't doing great, and they had famines that moved throughout. And so in this case, they heard about the famine that was coming. And what did Antioch Christians do? Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Now, we could brush by this and be like, it's a church. Sure, they're doing relief work. Hey, this is what a church does. It gets together. They love love, uh, Jesus. They got the spirit in them. They're being discipled. They're sending out uh, donations to other churches. This is what happens. But we can't miss how dramatic this is of a change for these people. Uh, Hellenistic Jews, people who would have been born and raised outside of Jerusalem, were looked down on by those who were in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they had existing divisions. They had Greek synagogues and they had Hebrew synagogues. The Pharisees said they were second-class citizens. So they were not by any means in a position that they were, had good feelings towards Jerusalem. The Gentiles who were in here, the Jews had a lineage of prejudice against them. Jonah is a famous prophet we know who was mad at God that he actually forgave the Ninevites. He said, come on, they don't deserve it? Are you serious? There was a hatred that was exemplified by him. The Jewish midwives during Peter's time were told and forbidden to actually help Gentile women in labor because it would propagate more Gentiles. Like you can't see a woman in labor and be like, don't help her. To see what happens, let the, if the Lord wills. So the Hellenistic Jews and the Gentiles who made up this church heard about the need and with what seems to be no hesitation said, we can put together whatever we have and let's go help them. Let's help the people of Jerusalem. That's the kind of change that shows itself on the outside from the work of the Spirit inside his people. That Barnabas is a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith that he rejoices in the work of the Spirit, that he invests in disciples in the work of the Spirit in Antioch, and that you begin to see such a change in those people that the world around them says, I don't know what to call them, they're Christians. They got this guy named Christ, Messiah, whatever that name is, they're little Christ. And that they see the need in Jerusalem, people who have historically hated and despised them, and they said, we want to help them. Let's sacrificially take our goods and let's give it to them so that they can have sustenance, so they can be provided for. Not even caring what that might mean for them because they're getting rid of their supplies. 
That's the kind of change that happens. That's the kind of thing that marks a Christian. The work of the Spirit God in us, changing us from the inside to look like Christ on the outside in this world. And that's the kind of change that I pray for us as a community. That I would pray that we would trust and follow after the leading of the Spirit in our life. That we wouldn't quench that. Sometimes it's hard to trust because even though you may see a history of the Lord at work, just like we talk about this building that seemed to come out of nowhere. Listen, guys, Monday I finally, after dragging my feet, said, okay, we're going to move to the middle school. I'm not going to lie. I was like, let's find a building, let's find a building. Okay, fine, let's do it. I shot a video, maybe you've seen it. I was just like really awkward and in my face, like, hey, guys, what's up? You know, so I did this thing, and, and, and we we're going to move to this building, and, and you know what? I'm excited about the partnership there. But immediately the next morning, God says, okay, but I got this spot over here. It looks pretty good. What? Man, I can't even tell you the way that you, I've heard prayers this morning about God removing uh, any hurdles. I have had uh, agent after agent after, after email after phone call rejected, not called, not returned, not anything, nothing from anybody. There are reasons that it's difficult as a church to find a space, and I'm not going to criticize that, but it's just, it's, it still beats you down. You're just like, I call this guy. He said, what's up, Pastor Chad? <laughs> sure, you come see it. It's just open door after open door of inviting us to come into a space, and we don't know what comes next there, but we can trust the God who leads us and we can also follow an obedience in a way that says, we might not make all the right decisions. But God really makes amazing things with messy people, with messy lives. And he changes us from the inside to be like him. And we trust and know that about us, about you, about everyone else. We know that God's at work in each one of us and we can show that kind of grace. That we can move into a place and say, all right, what's next? That we can trust that even like Antioch, that God can do an amazing thing in a people that we don't even know he's already preparing. And we can pray for that, and we can trust that, and we can be Barnabas when it happens and say, praise God, throw your hands up, let's rejoice. I want to throw party after party after party because we see the Spirit of God at work, and I want to pray to those ends. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you show yourself in a city like Antioch and in a man like Barnabas. And we just get a picture of the move of God's spirit that you change people from the inside and you promise to do that with your people here today. God, give us the strength and the confidence to trust you, to follow you, to know you, to have the faith of Barnabas, to be filled with the Holy Spirit day after day in the way that we walk. And I ask all this in Christ's name, amen.